0: Of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's eight days to Christmas. C.S. Lewis wrote a fun, funny little blurb about the way they celebrate that holiday in England. He couched it as if he, he were an, an the ancient Greek historian Herodotus describing the peculiar customs of a conquered tribe in a mythical land called Neoturb, Neoturb is Britain spelled backwards. The title is Xmas and Christmas, a lost chapter from Herodotus. In the middle of the winter, when fogs and rains most abound, the Neoterbians have a great festival called Xmas, that's E-X-M-A-S, and for fifty days they prepare for it in a manner which is called, in their barbarian speech, the Xmas Rush. When the day of the festival comes, most of the citizens, being exhausted from the frenzies of the rush, lie in bed till noon. But in the evening they eat five times as much as on other days. And crowning themselves with crowns of paper, they become intoxicated. And on the day after Xmas, they are very grave being internally disordered by the supper and the drinking and the reckoning of how much they spent on gifts and wine. Now, a few among the Neoterbians also have a festival, separate and to themselves, called Christmas, that's C-R-I-S-S-M-A-S, which is on the same day as Xmas, but which, we learn as Herodotus goes on with his description, is a song with a very different tune. We are here this morning for that different tune. It is a piano duet. The pianists are Nicholas and John the Baptist. Everyone knows about Nicholas, the saint who slipped in on Christmas Eve and left gold coins in a poor man's window as wedding dowries for his daughters. That act of Christ-like kindness still inspires the world. Even devotees of Xmas celebrate it. In the duet, his part brings smiles and laughter. His tune sings, Yes! His playing partner, John the Baptist, sits to his left on the piano bench, hitting the somber low chords. His tune is harder on the ears. It sounds like, No! I ask myself, who in my life has played the tunes of John and Nicholas. One John the Baptist in my life was William Howard Armstrong. He was a teacher at Kent School in Kent, Connecticut. He taught ninth grade boys two subjects, ancient history and study habits. And he wrote the book for each course, Peoples of the Ancient World and... Study is hard work. We called him Pitt. Why that was, I do not know. I looked him up last week on Wikipedia, where it says of him something that was also true of John the Baptist. I quote, Armstrong was loved, admired, and feared by his students. He suffered no fool gladly. Why that was, I'm going to tell you, Pitt was famous enough to show up on Wikipedia because of a children's book he published shortly after I left Kent. It was called Sounder and was made into a movie that was nominated for four Academy Awards. Pitt was a master storyteller in and out of class. According to Wikipedia, he was born at home in Lexington, Virginia, during a howling hailstorm capped off by a tornado. That sounds biblical and mythical. Elijah meets Pecos Bill. Pitt grew up on Bible stories. He said he loved them for what they left out. No one told me the Bible was not for young readers, so I found some exciting stories in it. Not until years later did I understand why I liked Bible stories so much. It was because everything that co- could possibly be omitted was omitted. There was no description of David, so I could be like David. The following story has been edited for church. One word has been changed. At Kent, all students attended daily morning prayer. In class, Pitt might ask us what we gleaned from that morning's reading from the gospel. One morning, the reading told of Jesus' invitation to a rich young man to leave his wealth behind and follow Jesus. He would find treasure in heaven, Jesus promised. With some regret, the rich young man declined the offer. Pitt. That was a very interesting story. What did you make of it? My hand went up fast. Pitt. Mr. Keller. Me. Well, It reminded me of Karl Marx. Mr. Keller, would you like to venture a comparison between Jesus Christ and Karl Marx? I nodded. Then proceed. We can't wait to hear it. I do not remember what I said comparing Marx to Christ, but I will not forget what happened after that. Pitt. Mr. Keller, that was a fascinating comparison. So, you have read Karl Marx's book, Das Kapital? No, sir. Actually, I hadn't. Then you must have read the Communist Manifesto. Nope. Then perhaps you've read Marx's reflections on the French Revolution. Sadly, no. Mr. Keller, have you ever read anything Karl Marx wrote on any subject? I was silent. Then, how is it that you venture your comparison? Too late. I took the Fifth Amendment. (laughs) Mr. Keller, you are as full of spit as a Christmas turkey. (laughs) Get out of my class and don't come back. And out I went. When later that week, Pence set word that I could return, I walked back into class and took my seat, a wiser man. I had learned this the hard way, study before you speak or bite your tongue. We can think of vices worse than foolish talk by a teenage boy. Grown-up greed, dishonesty, and lust have done far more damage to the world. Bad sex is the current epidemic. Rich and famous men are falling left and right. We are told that bad sex is sex without consent. It is true that sex without consent is bad. But that is too low a bar for ethical behavior. Good sex needs love. And love requires Commitment. Are you with me? Love is hard work. And sex without love is like speech without study, full of spit. So, Pitt was my ninth grade John the Baptist. I still love him for that education, and for kindnesses that he showed me later in the year. It turned out that beneath that loud bark and sharp bite, There was a tender-hearted man. No prepared the way for a deeper and stronger yes. That's a lot to learn from one teacher. No is a hard word. We don't ever like it in the moment that we hear it, even when in retrospect we're glad we did. John the Baptist said no to Herod's marriage to Herod's brother's wife, and that got John thrown in jail. After an excited Herod made a foolish promise to an alluring dancer, it got John killed. No is a good word. Nowadays, teachers are fired for saying no like Pitt did. If he had been fired, I would have been spoiled. Often, no clears the way for a better yes. Pitt's no took root and grew in me as high respect for informed opinion in careful speech. With no, there is some apple that I want. It is a piece of low hanging fruit within my reach so I can have it. No means I shouldn't take it. Can do, want to do, and ought to do conflict. On earth this happens often. Heaven is where that conflict disappears. Want to, can do, should do coincide. I learned that from C.S. Lewis. In the final Narnia book, The Last Battle, after all their adventures, the children arrive in a familiar-looking but better world, and they're hungry. Not far away from them rose a grove of trees thickly leaved, but under every leaf there peeped out the gold or yellow or purple or glowing red of fruits such as no one has seen in our world. They all moved toward the trees, and everyone raised his hand to pick the first fruit that he best liked to look of. And then everyone paused for a second. This fruit was so beautiful that each felt, it can't be meant for me. Surely we're not allowed to pluck it. It's all right, said Peter. I know what we're all thinking, but I'm sure, quite sure, that we needn't. I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. Want, can, and ought are still distinct, but they're playing the same tune. Following Peter's lead, the children all began to eat. What was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit that you've ever eaten was dull, and the juiciest orange was dry, and the most melting pear was hard and wooden. If you had once eaten that fruit, all the nicest things in this world would taste like medicine after it. But I can't describe it. You can't find out what it, is, what it is like unless you get to that country and taste it for yourself. So Lewis was one of my greatest teachers, and starting from my parents' knee at bedtime, one in my life who played the tune of St. Nicholas, seated on the bench by John the Baptist. And thanks to Lewis, I've always been a theologian. He made study easy work stocking my mind with creatures of his making, the inhabitants of the world that Lucy discovered in the game of hide-and-seek, through the wardrobe that opened on a forest illuminated by a lamppost on a snowy light in a land under a dark spell that made it always winter but never Christmas. And because of Lewis, I have always known that my believing Christianity to be completely true does not require my believing that other religions are completely false. And I have always known that faith is no enemy to science. And I have never let modern thought talk me out of my belief in miracles or edit out my hopes for heaven. And thanks to him, I have always carried hope for those who have given up hope for themselves or succumbed to foolishness or worse temptations and let their lives go sour. There is a buried treasure in every soul, and it may yet come out with just a little bit of help. If we will just say yes to that help, then that treasure, which is the person we were always made to be, our best self, will finally emerge. Lewis believed that even after death God's, God lovingly makes the offer one more time to those who on earth refused it. Exmus Neoturbians may well taste Christmas in the end.